Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Well, good morning, Venture. What a great morning of worship already. I I love baptism. Anytime we celebrate baptism, I, I just think that's the best part of the service. So I appreciate this morning the opportunity for us to uh, celebrate that together. I'm excited this morning as we go into week two in this new series in the book of James. And I thought last week, didn't Chuck do an awesome job launching this series? Yeah. And just an overview of it as we've been looking at it. And, and I was thinking about it and praying about coming off of Romans. We spent most of last year in the book of Romans. I can't think of a better counterpart to go with Romans. And you look at Paul and James, and sometimes we're going to see some places where we go, man, how do we make both these books work together? But there's this great partnership. And one of the things I, I like about James, he's, he's different than Paul. You know, Paul, in every one of his books, he spends at least half the book laying kind of a foundation of theology, and then he turns to the practical. James, on the other hand, he just comes right out of the gate. We're gonna see every chapter just dives right in and says practically, if you're a Christian, how do you live this out? What does it look like in practical ways? This is why I think there's so many verses in this book you probably know or you've quoted or you've gone back to because he he forces us as Christians to wrestle with it. Now, maybe you're here today and you go, well, Tim, I'm not a Christian or I'm early in my journey. I think this is a great book for you. And the reason I say that is James lays out a picture of what is Christianity supposed to look like? What are we supposed to be doing as Christians? And so maybe you've had a misguided view or maybe you've seen Christians in the past and you go, man, there's parts of that I don't like. You're going to like this book because James goes, hey, I'm going to call them to it. And it'll give you a great opportunity to evaluate the kind of faith that we talk about. How do you actually put that in action? So turn in your Bibles. If you brought a Bible, if you didn't, grab one of the blue ones right in front of you. And we're going to go to James chapter 1. James 1. If you brought your own Bible, go to the very back and then start moving forward. Hebrews will be a big book. It's right after Hebrews. If you're using the blue one, it's page 1,199. 1,199. And let's read as James writes. We're going to just look at seven verses, but I told you, he doesn't waste any time. Right out of the gate, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so as you look at this, and we're, we're going to walk through this passage because it's loaded with a lot of terms. This is probably a passage that if you've been a Christian for a while, you go back to this because it forces us to wrestle with realities of life. And, and you look at it right at the gate, out of the gate. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So he says, my brothers, that's a general term, kind of the same way that I would sometimes I'll say, hey, you guys. 
And I don't just mean the guys, I mean everyone. When he uses brothers, he's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. But he's writing it to Christians. So he's making an assumption that you have a relationship with God, Christ has changed your life. And because he's changed your life, there's an expectation we would live different. And we would live different, especially when life gets tough. He says, count, that word count, consider, reckon, it's a decision you're making. And so it's not like consider, hmm, you ought to think about this. This is an idea. No, he's going, no, I'm asking you, I'm commanding you. It's in a command. You're going to make a decision. And it's a decision to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. That word, when you meet, meet actually is mean when, when you're overtaken. Sometimes it's used for hijacking. It's the same word Jesus used when uh, he talked about the Good Samaritan, the man that was traveling down the road and the robbers jumped him. And James just says, hey, there's gonna be times in life, I don't care who you are, you get jumped. Not by people, but by trials. And even that word, I love that word trial. In Greek, it's pirates. Um, the English word we get from it is pirate. So you think of a pirate. And I'm not talking about the, you know, the charming Johnny Depp type pirate. I'm talking about the Captain Phillips, you know, we took the boat, I am the captain of the boat. James forces us to recognize that even as Christians, I mean, you're gonna meet, you're gonna get jumped by pirates called trials. And and I love that he put various kinds. He's not just talking about the extreme. He's talking about every level of that, that you're gonna face difficulties in it. And I've had the opportunity as I've been studying this book and over the last few weeks, especially this last week, of just kind of walking through the trials of my life and things that I've faced and the reality of it, of deaths, of sicknesses, of cancer, mental health issues and struggles that family has faced with it. And and even as we approach a message like this, I mean, if we go across a room or somebody watching online and you start talking about trials, we're we're not just talking about this generalized category. We're, We're talking about some of you are facing right now physical trials. And you've had a diagnosis that you didn't want to get. You're struggling with it. Some it's the trials of mental health. You deal every day with anxiety or depression. Issues. Financial trials. A lot of people under that. Maybe work's not going the way you want it to. Maybe you, you, you got more month than you have money. And so every month it's hard to figure that out. And you feel that stress all the time. Relationships. Maybe your marriage is in a trial. You don't know if you're going to make it. Or you found yourself alone in a season of life you didn't expect to be alone. And you struggle with loneliness every day. Maybe it's not just directly you, but it's, it's in your sphere, the people you love, your kids, your grandkids, your friends, and the weight of that. And when James is writing this, hear, hear me, because you, you might read these verses, and if you're in the trial, it can almost like, oh man, consider it all joy. This guy's so disconnected. He, he's not writing this from some ivory tower, some pastor somewhere that goes, hmm, I've got a good idea for him. James is in Jerusalem when he writes it. It's about 49 AD. They're in the middle of persecution and suffering. Everybody around them's turned on him. 
church in Jerusalem is feeling the heat. They go through a period of famine. They don't, they don't have food. They don't have money. That's why all these new churches, when Paul was out on a missionary journey, they're collecting money for the church back in Jerusalem. And so when he writes these words, he's not writing them as some guy who's detached going, oh man, this is good advice for you guys. He's writing it as somebody who's right in the thick of it. And he knows what it means. That's why it's so much more powerful when you realize that. And, and he writes it right out of the gate. He says, count it all joy, my brethren. Choose joy. And even as he says that, you go, choose joy. And, and there's a lot of confusion around this word joy. Sometimes as Christians or, or even people, when they talk about joy, a lot of times we equate it just to happiness or just, just to being in a good mood. You know, it's almost like James says, hey, you're going through a hard time. <laughs> Lighten the mood. Get in a good mood. Find your happy place. You ever heard that? Find your happy place. Or, or find your happy song. You know, I was Googling all the happy songs that are out there. Everybody's got your happy song, don't you? That song that puts you in a good mood. Maybe, you know, Beach Boys, Good Vibrations, or I'm Walking on Sunshine, or Feral Song, Because I'm Happy. You know, you put that on. Or, or maybe the king of them all. Don't worry, <laughs> be happy. Don't worry, be happy. I, I don't know about you, if I'm going through a really hard time and somebody walked up to me and says, don't worry, be happy. What do you wanna do? You wanna punch them, don't you? That's, that's not what he's doing here, by the way. Now, now l- let me correct the other side of it because sometimes as Christians, We can go to the other extreme of it and we've created this kind of term for joy that has nothing to do with happiness. You ever heard this? You know, as a Christian, you should be joyful. I am joyful. I am not happy, but I am joyful. And you kind of look at it and you go, really? Guys, there's no such thing as glum joy. In fact, the two words, joy and happiness, sometimes in scripture, you'll see them used back and forth. There's a lot of overlap in them. And so there, there is a part of this when he's talking about, it's not that you've just created this morose term joy. I am joyful because I'm a Christian. No, he, he, he's describing it. Here's how I define joy. Joy is the delight of the heart that comes as a gift from God based on the work of God. It's the delight of the heart. There is an emotional part of it. There's an emotional response to it. Emotions aren't a bad thing. As Christians, we don't just ignore emotions or we don't just stuff emotions. We don't act like they're not there. You're gonna have real feelings, real emotions. Emotions are actually good indicators of what's going on inside. It's kind of like when you're driving a car, you have all those lights on your dashboard, those indicator lights, that's what emotions are. They're indicator lights to tell you what's going on in the engine, the heart. Now, you want them as indicators, you don't want them as your motor. You don't wanna be driven by them. And so in this, he's saying, hey, you need to have a joy that comes that's different than just what emotionally drives you. Here's what he's saying. As a Christian, I need to expect struggles because it's not a matter of if, but when they come. So I'm choosing joy in that. I'm choosing that delight and and I'm choosing it in a real way. And, And this is the powerful thing as a Christian. We know these issues are gonna come. It's not if, it's when. Notice he says, when you meet these trials. 
Because sometimes we create this, this thinking in our mind and Christians are sometimes the worst about this, honestly, that we think, okay, as long as I'm a good Christian, as long as I'm you know, not doing any of the really bad stuff, of course I'm struggling, but you know, I'm consistent, I'm consistent in my time with God and I'm going to church and I'm involved in community and I'm being a good boy or a good girl, then life is supposed to stay kind of good. That's the deal I have with God, good things. And then trials come and hard times come and all those categories we just went through. And, and, and we get this, if you have an if mentality, see, you think trials are something exceptional. And so if they've come, something really went wrong. As opposed to embracing a win mentality that you recognize, it's not exceptional, it should actually be expected. And, and the reason we expect that the reason we expect that it is not because God's doing something to us or, or that, all those things that we can go to when we think it's the exception. We expect it because we realize I live in a fallen world and sin has actually impacted everything. It's impacted the systems of the world. It's impacted my own physical body. It's impacted the, the, the way we age and we go through life. It's impacted people around me. And in this fallen world, some of them make some really poor choices. And some of them make evil choices. And I'm impacted by that. I realize that there's an enemy in this world. And he hates God. And he hates Jesus. And he hates every part of God's family. And, and so when I, I recognize that and I know that, I don't live in this kind of la-la land. As long as I do the good things, life is going to stay good. Even Jesus, remember what Jesus said on the chapter on worry in Matthew 6? He, he goes through this whole chapter on why we shouldn't worry. And here's how he ends it. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. He says, worrying is not going to do anything about your tomorrow. And then he ends with this line. He says, every day has trouble enough of its own. He doesn't say, don't worry, because life's going to be good as long as you're good. No, he says, life has trouble. Life has, has these trials. And, and, and I need to expect that. Now, James is not writing it like expect it and just ride the roller coaster of life. You go up and down, you have good days, and you're going to have bad days, good days and bad days. That's what the rest of the world has to live, because they don't have Jesus. Remember, he's writing people that have this foundation in Jesus. And so because of that, we don't have to respond like everyone else. We don't have to respond in that way where the world, when they approach these bad issues, what do they do? And maybe you find yourself in the trap of this where, you know, I'm having a bad day or I'm going through a trial. So I got to do anything to get that away from me. I got to do anything that I don't feel that. I don't want to think about that. So maybe I'll self-medicate a little bit. Maybe I'll turn to a little weed or maybe I'll drink, drink just enough to get the edge off. But I find myself going there a lot. Or maybe I, I'll, I'll just, I'll, you know what I'll do? I'll just get on my phone and I'll just stream. I'll stream videos for hours. I'll just hit video after video and get that dopamine rush because I don't want to think about life. Well, I'll, I'll get on Netflix. I'll get a show. I'll just stream seasons of it. Just sit there episode after episode because I don't want to face life. Or I'll dream about the next vacation, the next weekend, the next anything to get me out of the reality of what I'm living in. And I'll just kind of ride that roller coaster. It's a good day, it's a bad day. It's a good day, it's a bad day. 
James says, hey, as a Christian, we don't have to live like that. In fact, in it, he says, you, you could choose joy even in the bad days. And, and the, the key on it, and I've taken this line, Cornell West coined it, but I think it really applies here. As a Christian, I have a choice. I can either be a thermometer or a thermostat. I can either be a thermometer. A thermometer has no control over its setting. Whatever the atmosphere, whatever around it, if it's cold, thermometer shows cold. If it's warm, thermometer goes up. And the thermometer is trapped by whatever's happening in the circumstances around. A thermostat says, it doesn't matter what's around me, I'm gonna set the temperature. I'm gonna set what's going on. I'm gonna set my mind on joy. And, and I do this, and, and this is where I think this, this Christian term of joy, while it includes happiness, it's different than the way the world talks about happiness. Look how one writer, or listen to how one writer put it. It says, happiness is because of the world's system of happiness and this thermometer mindset. Joy is in spite of. Happiness comes as a result of things that are happening in your life. When things are happy and good, that produces happiness. This comes from outside and it works its way in. Joy, on the other hand, comes in spite of. While the things happening around you can in fact produce joy, your joy is not dependent on those things because joy flows from a reservoir inside of you. So we go back to that definition. It's a gift on, from God based on the work of God. It's something God's actually gonna have to do in my life. It's a fruit of the spirit. It's one of those things when I have the Holy Spirit within me that should be manifesting fruit that should show up in my life, joy is part of that fruit. That's why as you grow older, as you mature, the most mature people should have the most joy because it's evidence of that fruit. I'm gonna tell you, it's so important, not only for our own life, but for our witness in the world. Guys, there, there is nothing worse in the world than a bitter Christian. Here's one thing worse, an old bitter Christian. And, and I mean that in the season of life where the maturity of walking with Christ should be manifesting fruit the most to reach a point where it's bitter, where, where the circumstances have so dominated that instead of being a thermostat that goes, you know what, I'm gonna choose. You become a, a thermometer, I'm gonna just ride with the circumstances. If I'm having a good day, hmm, I might express joy and it's good. But if I'm having a bad day, everybody's gonna know it. And if it's something I don't like, I'm getting that much more brutally honest about it. James says, you don't have to live like that. You don't have to ride like that. You, you can make a choice. Now, when he says make this choice, though, it's not that he's, oh, make this choice because it's just a mindset. If you just have the right mindset, it'll fix everything. He goes, no, we make this choice, and the choice is actually based on what God's doing. Look how he puts it in verse 3. He says, for, in other words, I've made that choice because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
You're, you're going to go through, every time you face trials, it's a testing. It's a testing of your faith. And, and the purpose of that testing is to produce this steadfastness, this strength that comes out of it. And, and the, the word testing here, sometimes we, we hear that and we think immediately with testing, it's pass fail. Like if you go into a class and there's a test today, what are you worried about? Man, if I don't do well enough, I didn't pass or I got to get a good grade with that. Uh, that's not how he's using this word. The testing here is not pass fail. In, in fact, remember he's writing Christians. And so let, let me go ahead and tell you right now, if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you pass. In fact, you got a great grade, a perfect grade because his grade is applied to you. The testing he's using here, it's interesting in Greek, if you look at the word, it's actually the same word for good character or faithful character out of it. So it's not a testing to prove whether you failed or not. It's a testing to show what you really are, what God believes you are. See, God knows he's doing something in you. God knows that he's changed you. God knows that Christ is in you. And so in these times in life, we come into these circumstances and a trial comes. And instead of rushing in and intervening, God says, yeah, I want my child to go through this because through this time of testing, it's like the picture of silver that may have some impurities that goes into the fire. You don't put the silver in the fire because you're wondering if it's really silver. You know it's silver but you wanna burn away some of that dross. And James says in the same way, I can actually count it joy because I know that's what God's doing in my life when he tests me. See, the, the point of it is God allows me to face difficulties because out of the struggle comes strength. Out of it comes this fortitude, this perseverance. It's just, just like parenting. You know, when you, you have a child parenting, you, and th this is the, the part of it, that when you have a child growing up, it's that when do you intervene, when do you not? Especially, you know, if you ever had this, like in school, the child comes to you the night before and I've got a project due tomorrow, you know, and I need 8,000 supplies and all this stuff with it. And you're like, seriously, seriously. And then, then you're working on it. And I always feel bad for my kids because I, I am terrible, like artistic ability when it comes to drawing even writing neatly, I just, that, that escapes me. I can't do it to save my life. Can't draw a straight line with a ruler. I'm, I'm just bad. And so my children over the years, they'd have these school projects and science fair projects. Oh, don't get me started on science fair projects. And you know, it's not just the project. They then have to have the poster board and the presentation and all that stuff with it. And, and we were always like the parents that we said, you're actually gonna do it. And so my poor kids with my artistic ability, you know, their, their, their board looks horrible. Just, and, and then they, you know, go take it. And, and I'd always struggle with the teacher because they get points off for neatness. In fact, I said to a teacher once, I thought it was a science project, not an art project. That's my issue. Okay, so just <laughs> deal with it. But you go, have you, have you ever had this? And there's your kid, they're setting up their project, and especially some of mine, and you know, it looks like it. And then there's the parent right next to you. And the kid's doing nothing, the parent's doing all the work. You know, they get this 3D, you know, imagery, and they print it out on a 3D print. And then all these charts and graphs, and the kid's like seven, you know, you're looking at it. And I always wanna say to the parent, hey, I hope you get a good grade on it, because you obviously did all this. Again, my issue, I know, with that. 
What happens though, if over and over in life, we, we got that term helicopter parent, the parent always jumps in, always keeps the kid away from pain, always keeps them from struggling. We know what happens, don't we? That, that kid is never gonna reach the potential that kid could be. And in fact, you look at it and you want to tell the parent, man, I wish you'd believe in the kid more. Guys, God's a good parent. And he doesn't rush in. Sometimes when we think he should. Many times when the struggle is more than we think we can bear. Because he goes, man, I know what's there. I know the silver in you. It's good. And, and as a good parent, here, here's the key of parenting. It's, it's how do you provide space and grace? How do you provide the space to a kid when they struggle and the grace when they don't get it right? And, and you'll do it all throughout parenting. I mean, think about it. When a kid's learning to walk, remember when your kids, if you have children, when they're babies and they start taking that first step, what did they do? They, they take one little step and then they fall. And as a parent, as soon as they fall, do you stop and go, well, this kid's a loser. <laughs> yeah, we're not gonna be able to do the walking thing. They obviously didn't get it. Now, what do you do? Every little step, you're like, yes, wait, you're cheering. And then they try a little bit more and they try a little bit more. You're not put off by the failure because you know it's part of the process. Guys, in, in the same way, God in our life, he's not put off by failure. Because remember, Christ has already done it all. He laid the foundation. And so in each of these places, he, he brings us to points. And like a good parent, he says, hey, I'm not gonna walk for you. I'm gonna give you the space. And then when you fall, he always comes with grace. And so as you're in that process, He's going to do it. And, and the other part with it, he'll do it maybe longer. He's more patient than we would be. Because he said this strength, this steadfastness, to have its full effect, he's going to let it go so that you can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The whole thing is about maturity. The whole thing is looking more like Jesus. And so this process of patience that he has so that we mature in Christ with that. See, this strength is like a muscle. If, if you don't give it time, if it doesn't come against that resistance, it's not going to grow. And, and we know this, you know this with physical workouts. If you're somebody that works out, you lift weights with it. Unfortunately, you know, my workout plan of sitting for eight to 10 hours a day is not producing the results I would like. <laughs> and you laugh because you go, of course. You, if you're going to exercise your heart, you're going to exercise your lungs, you're going to exercise your muscles. There's a struggle. And in the same way, God looks at each one of us and, and it's not because he's down on us. It's not because he thinks little of us. It's because he knows the silver in you. He knows the good that's there because he put it in you. And he says, I'm gonna give you the space. And sometimes that space you go, it was too much space, God. I need you a little closer. And he goes, no, you got this. I'm gonna actually let you struggle. And even when you don't struggle the right way, 
Even when you fall, I'll pick you up. We, we, we got the next step in it. And James says, hey, if you fully want to embrace this, see, that's why I can choose joy. That's why I don't have to be controlled every day by the environment around me. That's why I can be a thermostat instead of a thermometer. Because I know God's using this and doing this. Now, honestly, when, when you hear that, though, you go, Tim, I don't think that way. That's not my natural response. Something goes wrong, I, I'm immediately like, God, fix it. I want out of it. And I'll be honest, that's how I think, too. And James knows we think that way. He goes, this isn't the normal way of thinking. I get that. So look what he says in the next verse. He, he says uh, in that, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. He, he says, if you don't think this way, ask for wisdom from God. Ask for wisdom. And, and that term wisdom, he's not saying you need more knowledge. Because a lot of times when I face a struggle or I'm going through a trial, if I just had more information, that would help me. Uh, you, you ever been through this? You're going through a hard time. You're going through, maybe it's a physical hard time. Maybe it's an ailment. And what do we do? I will turn to Google. Google will help me. I just need to get smarter. If I got smarter, I can solve this. Does that work for anybody else? Because usually I get more stressed. It's not asking for more information. It's not asking, it's not just being smarter about it. There's a lot of smart people who are not very wise. This wisdom he's talking about, let me give you the category with it. This wisdom is, it's the ability to discern or judge what is true, right, or lasting. It's ability not just to have information, it's how to use that information well. And, and you can be really brilliant in some ways and not wise at all. I mean, probably the best example of this for me is, is Albert Einstein. I mean, is there anybody smarter than Einstein? His name is literally a synonym for genius. If somebody's really smart, we go, oh, she's an Einstein. He's an Einstein. And Walter Isaacson's biography of Einstein's fascinating. One of the areas where I can tell you he wasn't a genius, it was human relationships and his marriage. He, he, he struggled in his marriage. So, so in his genius, he wrote to his wife, Maleva, some conditions of their marriage. And, and the page of it, it, it literally says at the top of the page, conditions. Yeah, we're off to a great start here. Listen to some of them. He told her, he said, all right, here's the conditions of our marriage. You will make sure that my clothes and laundry are kept in good order. That I will receive my three meals regularly in my room that my bedroom and study are kept neat, especially that my desk is left for my use only. You will renounce all personal relations with me if they're, unless they're necessary as I deem them. That includes my sitting at home alone with you or going out and traveling with you. You will obey my points in relation to me. One, you will stop talking to me if I request it immediately. You will leave my bedroom or study immediately without protest if I tell you to. Hey, how many women out there, you're, you're like, oh, sign me up for that. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't take an Einstein to realize this is not going to work. But even Einstein didn't realize. Uh, they ended up divorced. Spoiler alert, so that's a surprise, huh? And I say that not to pick on him, but obviously the guy's genius in a lot of ways, but he certainly wasn't wise. And I say this 
because we're in the Bay Area. We're, we're in one of the most educated, brilliant spots on earth. We have a lot of smart people here. And I love it. I love being around it. But don't assume smart is wisdom. Wisdom comes from God. Wisdom takes a humility to go, God, the way I naturally think about this, the way I think about trials and struggles is not like this. And, and so I need you to give me the ability to see it like you do, discern like you do, to judge it like you do. And, and I love this part of the verse. God loves to give wisdom. He does so without disparaging me for asking. Isn't that great? He says, he gives generously to all without reproach. In other words, I can go to him again and again and keep asking him the same thing. Keep asking for wisdom. Keep asking him, help me understand or help me live or help me approach this. And God never looks at me and disparages me. He never is condescending about it. I don't know, have you ever been in a circumstance, maybe it's a class or you've been around someone that you know you need to ask a question, but you're scared to ask a question because you know you're gonna look dumb? I mean, we face that a lot and we end up getting quiet about it. Uh, another thing that about me, I told you I'm terrible at art. I'm also terrible at remembering numbers. I don't know why, it's just like, I can remember stories, I can remember people and names and all this stuff, can't remember numbers. My wife, on the other hand, can remember every number she's had in her life every phone number. She remembers her locker combination from high school. That's weird, isn't it? That's the way I just kind of, and, and, and so of that, especially before smartphones, I would call her all the time. She's like my Rolodex. I was like, hey, can you give me so-and-so's number? I remember one time I called her and I said, hey, can you give me this number? It was on a cell phone, it wasn't a smartphone. And so I said, hey, can you give it? And, and she started to give it and she said, take out a piece of paper and write it down. And I was like, I got it, I got it, I got it. I hung up and I started and I did not have it. <laughs> and so I call her right back. Uh, hey, can you give me that number again? I got the first three digits and I told her, she said, that's not the first three digits. And so she gave me the, you know, she gives me the number again. And she said, did you write it down? I said, honey, I got it, I got it, I know I got it. I hung up, oh, I didn't have it. And then I sat there for a minute trying to think of anyone else I knew that might know this number. <laughs> it's like, I, I cannot do this. I cannot call her. And I, I, I called her back. And even as she answered, she said, get out a pen and paper. <laughs> and I told her, don't judge me. <laughs> that, that, that feeling of, oh, here I am again and again. And I, I'll be honest, if you're going through hard times, if you're going through struggles, and think about it, if there was anyone who had the right to judge us, to disparage us, that when we come back to him again, the same prayer I prayed just an hour ago, and I'm praying again, and I'm asking again, and I'm struggling again, and I got a bad attitude again, and I don't see it this way again, and I bring it to him again and again and again, and you would think at some point God goes, are you kidding me? Can't you get it? But instead, every time I come, he goes, oh man, I, I love giving wisdom. He never disparages. It's never with reproach. 
It's always with a heart of generosity. That's why James says, of course you don't think this way. Talk to God about it. Ask God about it. Lean into God about it. And, and, And when you do this, he says, ask him in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For the person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. He says, you, you got to do this. Even leaning into God is an act of faith and you do it without doubt. Now, if you took this verse on just by itself, face value with nothing else, it can kind of be a scary verse. Because if you're like me, I go, whoa, James, I have my doubts. I have doubts about me, doubts about the situation. And and as you look at it, and sometimes it's even, maybe you've heard it taught this way. It's kind of put back on you that if you really want to see God do something, if you want to see him heal, or you want to see him show up or resolve this crisis or move in this way, you you can't have any doubt. And if God doesn't heal and he doesn't do these things, it's because you had doubt it was your fault. Guys, that's not what James is teaching here. We, we've already, he's already said this is based on the work of Christ. It's based on what God's doing in us. He's already said there's times when God leaves us in the struggle out of that. What, what he's talking about here with this doubt, he, he's talking about the kind of doubt of lacking confidence in God or considering his care over my life is unlikely. I'm gonna have doubts about me because I struggle. But, but here's what he's warning against because he knows how the enemy works. And from the very beginning, you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Satan's number one strategy is to come in and he wants you to doubt God. Did God really say that? Is God really gonna do that? Did God tell you you can't eat that? Did God say you're gonna die? You're not gonna die. God's holding out on you. You doubt God. You can't trust him. And, and, and throughout history, especially if you're going through trials, this is where it shows up. Where some people, when they start doubting God, you know, some theologies are built, well, maybe God really isn't in control. Maybe God's not in control of everything. Or others, you know, maybe God's not really good. He's, he's in control and he kind of wound up the clock and sent it out there or especially for Christians where I hear it a lot, is yeah, he's good and he's in control. But does he actually care about me? Did I fall through the cracks? Maybe I I, I did something wrong. Maybe I'm defective. And it's the exact opposite of how God actually thinks about you. Remember, God is allowing you to go through this period of testing because he knows the good in you. He knows your silver. And he wants to see you in all of the glory and shine in all those ways. See, it's it's a doubt where I doubt God. And and when I doubt God like that, notice he says you're you're unstable in all your ways. You're tossed to and fro. You're like a ship on the ocean that has no rudder. See, that rudder sticks in the water. That rudder directs you. But if you pull the rudder and the ship is just sitting on top of the ocean, what happens with every wind that comes, you're just blown. And I have seen this of people who in that hard time, in that trial, they start doubting God and they pull the rudder. They pull back from him. 
and you find yourself in a place where you're blown all over. You end up in a place you never thought you'd be. See, here's the key. The remedy for doubt is always faith. Trusting God for what I cannot see. It's always faith. And, And here's what I implore you. You may have doubts about you. You may not understand what God's doing. You may question it. You may emotionally not like it. You may have questions of God. Here's what I would encourage you. Read through the Psalms sometime. No one questions God more than David. David, who one minute he is rejoicing, but then other times he's going, God, where are you? God, I'm tired of this. God, my heart is broken. God, I'm crying all night. God, I don't know where you are. I don't see you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, he says those kind of things to God. Jesus said the same on the cross. See, you can have questions and you can have real emotions. God's not calling you to turn into some robot, but notice the key, whether it's David, whether it's Job, whether it's Jesus, anybody you see in scripture with it, here's what they do though. They have questions, but they're always asking them of God. They never pull back from him. They never pull the rudder out and say, I'm gonna handle this on my own. And what I implore you, I implore you, here's what faith means. You step out and you go, I cannot see what God's doing right now. And so in this storm, and if you ever need a rudder, it's in the storm. In this storm, I'm gonna actually put my rudder deeper into the character of God and the love of God and the faithfulness of God. I'm gonna choose to trust him even though I can't see, which by the way is the definition of faith. And so as we come to the end, here's what I would just challenge you with. Choose to trust God in the things I cannot see because he's proven himself faithful, true, and able. If you're going through a time of struggle right now, I promise you there's a part of this that every time I go through it, I can't see exactly what God's doing. Often I can't see why I'm going through this or I can't see why he's allowing someone else to go through this. But remember, I'm not their parent, he is. And he knows what he's doing in them and he knows what he's doing in you. And so it's in those times when I can't see, I always have to go back and go, what can I see? How did he work in the history? How did he work in the lives of other people in the Bible? How did he work in the life of Jesus Christ? How did Christ show his love for me in his death on the cross? How do I know that there's hope through the resurrection? How did I see him show up in my life again and again and again? Sometimes you have to rehearse what he did in the past to make it through the darkness of the present. You remember the days of light when you find yourself in the dark. And and I'll say this, you know, as I've spent the last couple of weeks rehearsing and remembering some really hard days that God's taken me through. Sometimes it's around health. Sometimes it's around the death of people I love. Struggles with my kids. And I look back on some of those events and I don't want to go back to them again ever. But I would not trade what he did in me and what he taught me through it for anything. That he's a God who loves me enough that no matter what I've been through in life, he has the ability to redeem it and to use it.
And so when I find myself in the struggle, James says, hey, don't live every day up and down. Choose the joy, the joy that comes because you know God is working in your life. You know God believes in you and he's refining you and he will never leave you and never forsake you. Take a moment, just bow where you are and, and as we finish out, we're gonna close out with a prayer through song. It's a great song that we're gonna finish with that we can express to God. But before we do that, why don't you just take a moment where you are? And for some of you that you're in the struggle right now, why don't you tell God you trust him? As an act of faith, you may not feel it, but as an act of faith, say, God, I trust you. I'm gonna put the rudder deeper. I'm not pulling it out. For some of you, you need to ask for wisdom right now. Say, God, I don't see it this way. So give me your wisdom. And for all of us by faith, I'm gonna ask us right now to make a choice, to choose joy in spite of what I'm going through. Father, we thank you and we praise you. We thank you for the work of Christ that we don't pass or fail. We passed in him. But we thank you for the love of a father who extends such grace and space and that you are working in our life. And we make this our prayer to you right now in Christ's name, amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.